Here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Good morning, and I'd like to welcome Ryan Mitchell, a business associate of mine that I've known for a couple of years now, and I thought that we could have a valuable conversation around the topic of legacy, as well as some of the very important lessons that he's learned, whether it's through the transition of his aging parents that have now passed, as well as some of the other lessons that he's learned from the sports world and other industries having worked in a number of Fortune 500 companies. So for an introduction, I'd like to briefly read his bio. Um, His education consists of a bachelor's in electrical engineering technology from Purdue, an MBA from the um, Granite School of Business, and an MS in information and communication science from Ball State University. He also holds certifications in change management, brain-based coaching, uh, the Coactive Coaching Institute, and PMP. Over the past 20 years, he's also worked with GE, General Electric, Eli Lilly, IBM, and Hewlett Packard. During his tenure at Eli Lilly, Mr. Mitchell worked in several global roles where he managed supply chains, product launches, and third-party partnerships. At IBM, he worked with researchers on a first-of-its-kind healthcare product offerings. The product offering was designed to streamline claim processing for providers, allowing processing to occur in real time. At Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, he was a product manager, bringing in new cybersecurity products to market. In addition, he has traveled throughout Africa, uh, specifically the countries of Rwanda, Burundi, and Kenya, where he headed up initiatives to increase the use of solar energy and improve the delivery of education to various members of their population. So welcome, Brian Mitchell. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, glad to be here. Okay. So one of the things that you and I have talked about in the last couple of years is the concept of legacy. And I know that one of the things that you have highlighted with me is that people are searching for a simple or a practical way to understand the concept. And I thought we would start here in terms of, you know, the conversations that you've had with others, how might you speak into this word? I think when you reflect back to legacy, um, sometimes we look at our achievements, whether there are awards, recognition, um, different different levels of uh, where we've established ourselves. But I think you'd look at legacy as what will you be really remembered for? A legacy can be good or it can be bad. So I think you have to see what are you really going to be remembered for? I also think um, three generations down, people don't know you anymore. So what do you leave maybe tangible uh, going forward to that's something significant for the next generation. When I talk about the next generation, I'm talking about three generations past. Um, Because if you think about it, you know your grandparents, but you don't know your great grandparents very well. So it's usually three generations. 
And what do you leave behind, maybe physically or something of tangible uh, evidence that you were here? Uh, so I kind of look at legacy as it could be, what will you be remembered for? Yeah, something of value. Something more, of value. Right, more than just property or financial assets. Correct. And I think people sometimes also, as we go through this journey in life, um, you also have to realize that some people will leave a negative legacy mm -hmm. as well. Bernie okay. Madoff in the financial industry left okay. a very negative. So what do you really remember for? Hopefully most people go positive and right. do positive things, but there's people that leave negative legacies as well. Which is interesting because one of the conversations that you and I have had is my personal definition of legacy is that it is the opposite of tragedy. So when I've looked out into the world, I have seen as, as many good things that people have done, as well as as many tragedies in the sense of the things that they haven't done, they were afraid to do, or they just were, um, you know, bystander. And, and maybe uh, it has to do with the, um, you know, the examples that were set for them or, you know, the rules of their family, like let's say in their prior generations, let's say there was a rule that said, you know, we don't get our hands dirty or another rule of, you know, we don't talk about those things. I mean, especially if I see uh, what's played out in the media with the Oprah interview and Harry and Meghan, we can see one generation being the Queen of England, having one perspective on how she defines duty as well as service to others. And then we see this upcoming generation that looks at the world differently and defines the exact same words it, it, with different meanings of what is, you know, how they personally view it. Any comments? Yeah, and different generations will interpret things differently. Um, I think you have to take in your present moment of what your legacy will be and then try to project out what, what you'd like to pass on to somebody else. Um, I always kind of look back and say, well, if I'd have known that, I wish I knew then what I know now mm -hmm. uh, uh, over the time. So the lessons being passed on. Also, uh, some African friends taught me this uh, analogy that they use. When they talk about somebody passing, like at a funeral, they say it's like a library book that's closed and they put it back on the shelf, never to be opened again. Only mm -hmm. those who read the book will be will have the knowledge that mm -hmm. was there or given to them. So whoever you've been exposed to and has passed on either a legacy physically or uh, intellectual pop property to somebody or just getting to know somebody, their legacy, um, once, once it's shut, it's like a book in a library and mm -hmm. never to be read again. So I think being able to pass on that information um, is part of the legacy and uh, being remembered for something. And I, I like to focus on the good part, but I just wanted to make part uh, that the legacy can be negative as well. So every day, every day, what you do in your everyday life uh, has an effect on your, on your legacy overall. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I appreciate uh, your being able to speak to both sides because there definitely is a polarity um, in understanding, you know, why do we do the good? Perhaps it is to avoid the bad, to avoid the pain and so forth. Right. Um, so I, I realize um, that you are a huge sports fan, and I thought that I would bring up some of the stories that you have shared with some of your clients as well as your other business associates throughout the years, whether it's looking at somebody like the golfer Tiger Woods um, or other athletes um, in the point that we often see when they succeed, but we don't get the opportunity to see the time that they are in the locker room, the time that they are in the gym, the time that they are on the golf course with five different coaches, 
as if somebody just gets born into success or they're just born into talent or they're born into winning. So I thought maybe you could speak into that for a moment, different sports examples that you have, because you're a big follower of sports. I'm not so much, but I know that there's valuable lessons to learn, whether it's from the basketball players, the golfers, baseball, football. So please, if you would. Yeah, I think in our in our today's modern environment, too, we are so inundated with information and things just instantaneously getting stuff so quickly that we just focus in on, oh, they, they made it to this, they won this award, they won this. Um, so I think in our society today, with all the instant communication, we're used to instant gratitude. So we don't look at that harder journey. Um, I guess the example I would use on the sports analogy uh, is Tiger Woods. I mean, he's gone through some turmoils um, personally with his, with his wife and that whole incident that's happened, the divorce, it was very public. Um, but he's also had back pains. And it was amazing to me, he come back and he won the Masters, which some people, when he first came back, uh, he was the number one golfer in the world. I think he was ranked, I don't know, 400 or something when he came back. He was playing so bad. Um, when he did win the Masters, he talked about his kids and how they, talking about a legacy, they actually seen him win a tournament instead of just watching Daddy on a YouTube video. Daddy mm -hmm. was somebody who golfed on a YouTube. Mm -hmm. They had never seen him win a tournament. They weren't old enough to remember that. So Daddy's legacy was some guy on a video. So they actually got to see him play. Also, talking about legacies, he said his kids get scared when he golfs. It's kind of bizarre when he made that comment to me. Uh, like, wow, why would you be scared? Well, they associate golf with daddy getting hurt and having back pains. They remember dad not being able to play with, to come over and play with him because of his severe back pains. Mm -hmm. So golf does a bad thing in their minds. All of us see Tiger winning. Right, right, right. The glory. The glory part of it in the right. initial, like, oh, we watched the last part of his rounds, you know, last hour, and you see mm -hmm. him win this championship and hold a trophy. But all the pain and all the suffering he went through and the sacrifices with his family to get there. And then also I thought it was very interesting. You talk about his legacy. When he first started out, he was very extreme. He's an extreme competitor to be at that level. You have to be, mm -hmm. he was saying that if you're not number, you're number one, number two is the first loser in the tournament. Right. Like, and why would you play to be number two? Some professional golfers said, well, Tiger, uh, you might learn that in the top 10, you still get a good paycheck. And he's like, I'm out here to win championships. I'm not here to just play the game. That right. was a focused level attitude. And it's definitely at that time. At that time in his early twenties, that, that's what his focus was on. Now he comes back and has an interview much later after he's gone through some tragedies and gone through life and aged a little bit. He's like, he does golf academies. He's set up some schools as well to help kids. He, he does public speaking and he's like, what will I be remembered for? I'm just some guy hitting a little white ball around the course. What is that? What yeah. value? This is Tiger Woods multi-millionaire maybe even on his way to being a billionaire i mentioned the word tiger and everybody says tiger woods in the world i can go probably any place right this is a man that now who comes back and says well what am i going to be remembered for i just hit a little white ball right so what, what i yeah what i'm hearing it's very interesting is that the the definition of winning then expanded so if initially winning was who wants to be second place it reminds me of 
almost like a lack of maturity, like, you know, the win-lose mentality. In order for me to win, you have to lose. Compared to where he's at now, it's when he wins and he's setting up schools in different locations, it's also that other people get to win in that he's sharing the knowledge, he's sharing the platform. I mean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, he's, he's expanded, uh, I don't know if it's maturity or just uh, experience, he's expanded now. And now his, you could tell in his, his voice, he was more concerned about what will be left behind. And also, um, more than dad passed, yeah, yeah. Passed, dad passed a few years ago as well. That had some effects on him as well. He was there when he won, won some of his championships. As a matter of fact, he said it was weird when he won another, I think it was a master's, that his dad wasn't in the audience to see him. Mm. He was so he used to having his dad, his dad used to caddy for him. So he he was very close to his dad Yeah. Uh, on there. So that passing as well. So how he remembers his dad and how he, how he wants to be remembered um, mm. as well. Yeah, that, I think that's key to, to just telling the, the different ups and downs that he's gone through in life. And now right. his focus is how to, he said, when he just said, I'm a guy hitting a little ball around a course, like devaluing himself, like he was the number one golfer in the world. And he's mm. like, what good is that? Look at these people that, you know, save lives like a doctor or a teacher who educates people. He was comparing it to people that maybe every ordinary day people that are doing extraordinary things and really right. helping with society. He's like, well, where do I put that value now? How can I give back to that, that type of community? Yeah, and it's interesting. I think one of the things you've also mentioned, especially with sports, uh, society can love to tear somebody down, but they also love the comeback hero. And that's Tiger Woods to the exact. He was at the number one championship, number one golfer. Then he had some affairs, some social, some uh, personal problems, and that got all publicized then he had back problems and people even some of his good fans kind of wrote him off well he'll never come back he'll just be in the audience and he did he made it back and he actually won the masters again um, with the with all the problems that he had most a lot of his fans said hey he's done it's been a good ride mm. let him just go off into the pasture right writing, him back. writing them off right yep and, and then when he come back and he won the masters Right. Everybody's there for when he had the affair, personal problems, everybody's like, oh, Tiger, oh, gosh, Tigers. Right. And they're going to distance themselves. Yeah. But everybody loves a winner, right? Yeah. 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 That journey and that struggle and that mental pressure. I think we've talked about that before when you're down and who's there for you. Um, like when they say, when the current goes out, you find out what you have. You have your true friends when you're really down like that. Right. Um, and that you're finding out what you're really going to be remembered for, how people look at you. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're down at that, at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I think that uh, people uh, many times don't realize how much effort goes into building as well as rebuilding. You know, we, we see like, as you mentioned, like the headlines in the newspaper, so-and-so won big, or we, we see the, that fame, that moment of, uh, you know, the, 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 the golf ball going in and, you know, the crowd cheering, but we don't have the opportunity always to know the backstory of, you know, the moments of doubt that perhaps Tiger had, like you had said, when his children look at him and think, well, do we want to play golf? Golf hurts dad's back. You know, it's, it's such a different perspective than a fan in the bleachers. I also think it just popped into my mind as well. Um, 
you know, we see Olympic athletes and we see, I don't know, 60 seconds on, on, on a video, maybe a gymnast, mm-hmm. you see her do some routine and she wins a gold medal, but you haven't seen eight to 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I had right. a friend that was nationally ranked um, in the gymnastics and she was talking about how it kind of ruined her childhood because that's all she did was went to school and then practiced for six hours a day seven days a week for 10 years where it didn't really she didn't really have a social life it was a goal to try to get to a national and try to get to an olympics but she came up a little bit short on on the olympic side of the world so just think that one minute a moment they have how much time and effort has been put forth just to make that little moment mm-hmm. in time and mm-hmm. we just see it instantaneously that glorification yeah uh, but there's a lot in the building and i, I turn that back to your legacy it's a collection of all the stuff you do during your life. It might not right. just be one moment. Right. Time, one, one award or one, one gift. It's a collection of your whole time. Yep. So I think what you're speaking into is how much effort goes into it, how much mental energy, how much strategy, how much um, feedback and uh, external advice go into building something that it isn't um, that somebody, again, just wakes up and they're a natural at anything. Like even people that are, you know, let's say born into wealth, you know, there's a lot that goes into keeping all of it going that that we might not see in the compromises and the sacrifices, but just as an individual that is a self-made success, you know, what the the amount of effort it takes to, um, you know, stay successful, to be successful, and also just to handle everything that comes with that. I also think we've talked about between the two of us too, we've talked about planning a little bit as well. Um, I think you talk about planning, look at an Olympic athlete or a Tiger Woods, how much planning they have to do to succeed, to go forward. And if somebody hadn't been there to help guide them or, or, or help them with that a little bit, get to that point, they never could excel. As you pass, pass on your legacy, it takes a lot of planning and, and, and upfront thought uh, to, to what this, it just doesn't come natural, natural instinct. Right. To you. So when you talk right. about legacy, it involves planning on what you really want it to be um, and what you want to consciously make efforts to, to have it be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that sometimes people think that they can just rely on their, uh, their gut feeling, their intuition. You know, I saw a quote recently by Bill Gates, something that uh, the number of times that he has relied on in his intuition, I thought, okay, that's great. But, uh, there's more that's gone into the uh, making of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or even the, you know, the what Bill Gates has built with his life, you know, good and bad. Yes. How think people, um, we get caught up in a squirrel cage, mm-hmm. going to work, kids, life, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden that time goes by. Now we're maybe 60, 70 years old. And we're starting to wonder, well, OK, what are we really going to be remembered for? If you start right. to do it up front a little bit more, maybe in your 30s or 40s, um, I had a professor one time that uh, it was a writing class and he had us write our own obituary. Sounds a little morbid, but we were in our 20s and he was trying to get us to think about, okay, if you would die, mm-hmm. what would you want somebody to say about you? What would you mm-hmm. want to be known for? What long-term wise would you want to be known for? So he was trying to get us to think about if you read an article, oh, wow, I remember him. I think that's I think that's part of the legacy is I want to be remembered 
um, because like I said, three generations, you usually don't know the person anymore. Right. Um, yeah, and I thought also so one I of the, we, go ahead, please. Well, oh. and I look at sometimes too, um, look at statues that are like 80, 100 years old. Yeah, we might've read about somebody or maybe there's a sports legend who's got a statue out in front of a stadium. Well, we weren't around when their heydays when they were big. So we're like, oh, yeah, some statue to some person. Unless we follow that sport a lot, we right. really don't know who that person is. But I look at Mother Teresa and what she did in being with the poor people. Now, she might have a plaque someplace or there might be a statue of her. I don't know. But I think her legacy lives on with all the people that she's helped and through multiple generations how she's, she's actually brought something forward that's been helpful to people. Yeah, so I think one of the areas that you're pointing to is that sometimes legacy does not have to be abstract or gigantic, it can be ordinary. For instance, uh, the ability of a parent to guide a child. I know one of the, the stories that we've chatted about recently is uh, Sophia Varguera. You had mentioned that she had brought her son into show business, whether it was the uh, commercials with head and shoulders or different uh, commercial opportunities given her uh, background in the entertainment industry to give him that head start. And yet, you know, her, please go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm, go ahead. I'll let you finish out. Well, that, you know, it, it was an example of somebody that I hadn't known about, but she herself had had a hard life, but yet she used, you know, what she had to give. And then you see where her son is today. And I think that when you speak about the concept of planning, um, Many um, affluent individuals do plan, but from what I've seen statistically, about maybe half write down even their vision statement. And so in that lack of what I would call a proactive and intentional effort of deciding, you know, how we're going to give, who we're going to give to, you know, it, it's being able to also to scan the environment, scan the landscape and see, you know, where are the role models and, you know, who can we find? Because, you know, if our parents planned, you know, then we have a memory in our mind. If they didn't plan, who can we find that is out there in the public that is, you know, creating something wonderful where they're at, you know, or something ordinary becoming extraordinary. Yeah, and I look at Bill Gates and his foundation and uh, Warren Buffett now has joined that and they've got the Billionaires Club that that, that you join and you pledge, you pledge your billions to, to philanthropy. Um, mm -hmm. to try to do something good with it. Um, I look at Arne, um, Carnegie Mellon. Um, he, he got his wealth kind of in a ruthless way, but as he aged, he donated a lot of it to try to do good. Now, I mean, there's Car Carnegie Mellon, the school mm -hmm. itself, you remember that. So he's passed on and remember that name. Um, but I think even in a small way of passing on, um, I, you'd be surprised to have worked a little bit in the financial world, how many people don't really even plan or want to plan for their passing on their benefit uh, as beneficiaries. And so so why do you think that is? If you would speak into that for a moment. I think sometimes that we have this mentality that we're going to be here forever um, in infinity. Death mm -hmm. is something that, yeah, it's there, but it's far off. And we, if we don't deal with it every day, we don't take the time to, to plan out and think, uh, I mean, death, death happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, relatives and stuff die or friends we know die, but we don't like to think about that. And we always think that that's far off for us. So I'll get to it tomorrow. 
Oh, mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about it. Uh, that won't happen for a long time. Oh, I'll get to it. It's something we just kind of put off and don't focus on that. Well, I've got more time, is I think common. Having you, you knowing me as well, um, having spent time with my parents going through the nursing home and being there for them and long, long-term care for a long time. Uh, one message always came that you only have so much time and how do you really value it? I think because we feel that it's infinite, we have an infinite amount of time day to day that we put things off. Mm -hmm. And there's a saying that uh, the days are the days are slow, but the years are fast. Go by fast. Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, touch on your parents in a in a moment, but I also want to bring up a couple more stories uh, about you know you know the the beautiful side of legacy, but also the dark side of legacy. Can we go there a moment? Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, you had brought up the story about um, individuals such as Jackie Robinson or Nelson Mandela that, and, and those are just two examples, two different continents, but I thought maybe you would speak into that a moment because the youth sometimes don't know, you know, we see the athletes today, but we might not know Jackie Robinson's story. Yeah, Jackie Robinson was the first black African American uh, professional baseball player. He was a great athlete. They brought him up uh, to to the major leagues now. And he was the first ballet athlete. They brought him up because he was really skilled and really a good player. And they could thought they were uh, value to it. The owner got death threats against him for doing that. Because he had, at that time. Was you weren't going to let a black person in to play professional athletes. That wasn't going to represent baseball in white America. Which is so um, interesting because if you think about today with Black Lives Matter, it, there's such a contrast now with people becoming more, what I would call, not just politically correct, but a little bit more sensitive to maybe the words that come out of their mouth. Not everybody, well, but some people. Well, well, and I think too, this is, I believe, but I'm not, I won't fall into that category of a minority, but I think we have, we didn't look at what great strides we have made. Mm -hmm. um, how many Black athletes now are in professional sports. But what I hear is, oh, like in the NFL, there's not enough black coaches. And I'm like, well, I, I don't understand this. What, well, I said, I'd rather be the, on the basketball team, I'd rather be the multimillionaire making $10 million or $20 million playing basketball than I would happen to be the coach, happen to be responsible for 10 knuckleheads, you know, mm -hmm. what I mean? making $3 million a year. And you're like, well, it's a prestige with a title, Brian, in the coaching mm -hmm. business. And I know just recently talking about Jackie Robinson, about two years ago, there was a black, I can't remember what team he plays for, but there was a black athlete that was out in the outfield and people were saying some racial slurs to him. Well, his white colleague, other baseball player, went and told uh, the, the security and the person was removed from the stadium and they were banned for life from baseball, going to a baseball game in a major league stadium now um, for saying racial slurs. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't throw stones at him. They didn't throw bottles at him. I mean, they didn't try to but kill the person, but just from making a comment now, that person's banned compared right. to Jackie Robinson who had, you know, KKK stuff crosses burnt in front of his house, things of that nature, 
five, 600 letters telling him they're going to kill him, happened to go into the different bathrooms. He wasn't allowed to even go into the same restaurants mm -hmm. with his own teammates before. Some mm -hmm. of his teammates even rejected him. They wanted him in a different locker room. Um, so I think, I, so what I, I wanted to shine a light on for a moment is the sacrifices sometimes that somebody, you know, when they are courageous and they believe in their talent or they believe in what their vision is, that the obstacles and the challenges that they can come face to face with in overcoming. And we might not think about it because we didn't live in that era, but then their, their choices and their decisions then obviously today opened up the door because they were brave and they held a space for change. Yeah, and I guess what I'm, you, you summed that up pretty well and what I'm trying to project is, I think if Jackie Robinson was here today and seeing maybe what opportunities black athletes do have mm -hmm. in the strides compared to his time and making that first stride and all the sacrifice he went through and all the pain and all the suffering with his family, he would say that we actually have achieved some things. Are we there yet to where people wanna be? And racially accepted, probably not. Right. But have we made, I think we dampen the fact that we have made big strides on some things in, in that area. Is there still work to be done? True. Yeah. But I think Jackie Robinson's is the stuff that they gave up and really, I mean, can you imagine coming home and you're worried about your daughter getting killed because you're playing a baseball game? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a threatening also, reality. And I also think he made big strides compared to um, Kaepernick, who just took a knee at at a football game for the for the anthem. Well, is that really a big sacrifice to me? That's not. That's not really putting yourself out there. I always question what he's done to actually positive on that. He'll be known for kneeling and getting people going, but has he really been there with the Black Lives Matter and really trying to make change? Uh, yeah. going forward compared to somebody like Jackie Robinson, who personally took, you know, pain to try to make strides forward uh, right. with that. Also, this is just a, a, uh, just a comment on my own. Yeah, yeah. It, it speaks to character. I also think this is just my own FYI solution to the kneeling is why don't we, after the national anthem, take a moment of silence for anybody who was wrongly killed via mm -hmm. police or wrongly killed just by, you know, maybe a gang or something like that. Why don't we take a moment of silence right after the anthem and kneel for a minute for anybody who we feel has been wrongly killed. You mean, do you mean like in paying the respects? You pay the respects to, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a solution. If you, if you want to say there's police brutality and you want to, you know, people have been wrongly killed, take a knee for that after the anthem for a minute. Right. Yeah, I thought that you could speak into the story of Jackie Robinson for a moment, because I think that um, not just, uh, you know, I think that we often don't know the backstory. We don't know that, you know, we could look at his scorecard that he had so many home runs or whatever the sports language is on the metrics and the KPI, the key performance indicators. But we don't necessarily know uh, what that individual uh, also had to be strong in related to their mindsets. Some of his own teammates didn't want him there. Yeah, yeah. They, went so, into the locker room. they didn't want to be in the same room showering with him. Yeah, so it would be interesting. Obviously, he's passed now, but to have had a conversation with him uh, related to, you know, what kept him going. Uh, did he have a, you know, a vision that was so strong? And, you know, was it also part spiritual? Because I, I've often heard that in interviews, let's say, with NFL players, 
uh, some of them, it becomes uh, spiritual when they're on the field. It's not just uh, the money. So, you know, I just, you know, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. So anyway, switching to Nelson Mandela, I thought that uh, you had made a, a good point to me about, again, the sacrifices one can go through when they believe in something, you know, the resistance that they can come face to face with. And when somebody, let's say today in the next generation, says that they have a vision, let's say it's uh, connected to impact investing or sustainability or a, a phrase that is becoming popular now known as, as ESG, environmental, uh, the sustainability, the governance and so forth, you know, are they willing per se to go up against uh, opinions that might be different than theirs? Would you speak for a moment of, of Nelson's story? Well, to Nelson Mandela, I don't have the exact numbers on that, but I think he was in prison speaking out against the government for, as a political um, hazard, I guess is a good word for it. But he was, he was speaking out against the government and they took him in as a political prisoner. He served 30 years in prison for that. Um, he later became on, become the, their, the president of their country. Um, and the thing that stood out to me is he sent, did that 30 years for political statements and speaking out against the government. That's a, that's a 30 years. Say you live to be 100, that's a 30-year life you spent yeah, in prison. Yeah, it's a good chunk. It's like a third of the life. Something you believed in um, for your apartheid. And uh, he was actually able to see that. And he was talking about, at first, he was bitter. About 30 years of my life is lost. Mm-hmm for this the injustice he, the injustice yeah yeah, yeah. he's like wow 30 years they took from me but then he started talking about what does that serve me if i sit here bitterly that 30 years is gone i can't get it back what can i do forward going forward with this movement and make things better mm -hmm. it's better to spend my energy moving forward than it is dwelling on how do i get back at these people that took 30 years from my life. So he let that grudge go. Did it hurt? Was it painful? Was it a huge loss? Yes, definitely 30 years of your life. But he figured out to himself that that wasn't gonna serve him the next 30 years well, that mm -hmm. bitterness, that anger. Um, so somehow he was able to channel that and let that go and do other good things moving forward. I think he found more joy in the positive than he did going back to the negative of the, of the world. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because anger can be such an addictive emotion. It can allow somebody to feel in control. And it's an interesting decision to work through one's feelings, which a, a lot of the times we're not given a guide or a process to. I think now more and more tools are becoming readily available. But I think especially at that time, and even today, it's very, uh, it's much easier to fall back into um, just feeling angry as a numbing emotion and just living within that. So, yeah, I, yeah. And also uh, I've read where uh, going back to a sports analogy, uh, a, a loss will be four times more impactful to you than you, than a win. Mm -hmm. um, there was a coach before. Uh, well, we take the negative. That's how we evolved over time. Um, we, we code that into our brain and it's helped us, helped us to survive. What I'm talking about is when we were 
primitive type of people, a lion jumps out. Well, we know that a lion is bad because a lion could kill us. So we mentally make a note of that and it's part of our survival. We encode that in our brain to be aware of that. So things that hurt us, we make mental notes very significant. It's coded in our brain to help us survive so we know we don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. So when we lose something that our brain can't detect physical pain from mental pain, it all codes in the same. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes the mental pain is taken just like the physical pain and it's coded in our brain to make us aware of it so it doesn't happen again. Our brain's trying to protect ourselves. Um, so I think that's why the loss is there um, more impactful than the pleasure side of it. You know, when you're talking about legacy um, and we're talking about pain, I think the pain side of the world, um, we don't talk about it as much, um, but there's a lot of pain to get to where you want to be. Mm, yeah. Yes, you can say that again. Absolutely. Yeah, I think people, sometimes they're afraid to talk about the pain because it, it leaves them vulnerable, but also how do we unpack it in a way that we can come out of the tunnel more positive, more healthy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I actually, I saw an interview the other day um, and it, it was a, uh, it was about a sniper and uh, he had uh, talked to his father afterwards and his father said, well, we don't talk about uh, you know what it feels like to kill someone. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Then how does the young son be able to, you know, how can he process it? And so he just, you know, I don't know if he ever did. I just know that it was it was shut down, and and again, it's because people might not know how to give the language to it, or they may have been raised with um, that you know this family suppresses it, or our culture suppresses those emotions, so they're never able to be able to they're never never able to excavate and bring it up to be able to just you know understand it, like you know what just happened, and yeah, what was my part in it, and how can I you know, choose differently going forward. It's almost like they can stay frozen in time or frozen in that memory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I also wanted to, speaking of, of the things that pain can teach us, um, I know that you have experienced in the last maybe three to five years what it is to care for parents that needed to rely on you on a number of levels, financially, emotionally, legally, with paperwork. And I just thought for a moment... Um, you might be able to talk about that, um, even if it might be still kind of close to your heart, um, given the number of other people, not just in America, but around the world that uh, find themselves within that position. And there is maybe not a white paper, a guide, a book or something. I just thought maybe you could, for a heart to heart moment, speak to, you know, what you learned. And yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, it's a shift in perspective. Um, you go from being the child to then you become the parent for your child. Uh, you know what I mean? For the parent for the parents. Yes. Yes. The swapping. Yeah. yeah the um, you know, you're taking on the parental role that they used to have. You have to watch out for them. Um, you're trying to do their best, best interest. Also, there's an emotional toll. Um, like for my father personally, and I know for a male, I think it's even more severe, but he had to ring the buzzard to have somebody help him go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. um, one time I found him, he was feeling better. And I found him on the floor. He'd hit his head on the sink. Well, instead of yelling at him, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you ring the bell and get somebody to help you? I knew he was feeling better. He wanted to do it on his own. He was mm -hmm. feeling better. So I couldn't get mad with him. I understood he was trying to do things on his own. He wanted to get better. 
but at the same time, you're trying to protect him, um, mm -hmm. you know, from getting hurt um, with that. So I think it's a shift in perspectives. I also think it's a shift in patience. For instance, I read a story about a guy who had Alzheimer's and he asked his son what this was. He's pointing out to the window and it was a little bird. And he said, it's a bird. Well, this goes on five times, five or six times within 10 minutes. And he's like, dad, it's a bird. Why don't, why don't you know this? It's a bird. Mm. You get frustrated with it. Well, the old man goes and walks back to his bedroom. He comes back about 10 minutes later and he pulls out a diary. Mm -hmm. And in the diary, it's got a date. And it says, today, I was extremely patient with my son who asked me 10 times what this little animal was outside the window. And it was a bird, but I knew he was learning. So I had patience with him. With a yeah. little kid can ask us 10 times what the same thing is. And we'll be patient with that because we know they're learning. When they're older and they forget a person, we get impatient because we think they should know it. Why do we have to tell you this? But they're mental frames, so it's a shift with right. that. I think the other thing um, that puts your mindset into what that person, step into their world a little bit. Um, we went to an Alzheimer's Society meeting one time. A lady introduced herself and said like, I'm Angela Carlton. Mm -hmm. She grabbed somebody and said, I'm, I'm an Alzheimer's associate. And she grabs a person by the head in the front of the audience, says, give me a kiss. Well, what does the person do? They pull back. Of course. So then she says, well, what's wrong with you? And gets in their face. Mm -hmm. Person jumps back even more. Then she goes back to the podium. And she says, do you see how that person reacted? They didn't know me from Adam. I just walked into the room. Mm -hmm. How scared they were. She says, then I did the most important thing. I start yelling at them. And the person gets more scared. Yes. Although you know your loved one, put yourself in their mind, they don't know you. Right. In their mental state, they don't know you. Right, so right. Shifting that state back to yeah. where putting yourself into that. Um, somebody that we were in the long in long-term care with, one of the caretakers was saying, sometimes we talk about today, sometimes mm -hmm. we talk about 1920, sometimes we go back to the 1950s when we we have conversations, but go on that journey with them. Don't get so angry. If you have time, go on with them journey. I think the other thing I had to take away that I learned personally, is rest in peace. We always think of that, or I did, where it's just on a tombstone. We want them to rest their life. You know, they died. Rest, be restful the rest of your life, wherever that is in eternity. Mm -hmm. Well, what I learned is that people want to die in peace. Maybe some relative did something to you. Maybe somebody did something to you as a kid, but you're not able to address it. You're not able to phone them. You're not able to find them. Maybe some relative cheated you out of money and you're mad, but you don't, the relative's not around anymore. So mm -hmm. you can't get that frustration out. Let um, me interrupt you for a second. And there's that saying I've heard, I think it's from a Canadian. Nobody knows how to do you in better than family, but go on. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, true. Very true. A very good analogy. But- <laughs> I've seen this in my own father. Uh, one of our relatives had, had done some things and he used to just randomly bring this up and get angry, just mm -hmm. randomly. 
he would mm -hmm. go off and vent and just randomly go. And the caretakers told us, well, sit down instead of just trying to divert him and divert the conversation to something else. Ask him about it. Ask him how it felt. Have him tell you the details about it. Tell him, ask him what was going on. Ask him to elaborate on it. And he said, by talking to somebody about it several times, probably, then they'll let it go because this is bothering them. It's with them, this pain, and they want to let it go before they pass, before they actually pass. Which I think is huge. Yeah. And I didn't realize that, you know, sometimes some grudges and stuff can be held with you. And the true meaning of rest and peace is that you want to die with no, you know, yes. bitterness. Right. Bitterness and you There's can't stress. resolve it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why, why die with bitterness if you can't, you know, if you can solve it or resolve it somehow. Um, and it's funny how we, we remember things in our long term. Talk yeah, about legacy. Yeah, and I just want to say it's amazing what people hold on to. We might never know what can bother somebody, what hurt them, and yet they can carry that for decades. And the and the, and the other party that may have hurt them, uh, number one, may be clueless. They they might may also be apathetic. But you know, then we can also hold ourselves in, in an internal prison if we can't let that go. And it does take a huge uh, act. I don't know if it's a spiritual act per se to finally say, I'm not gonna let that eat away at me anymore. Please go ahead. Yeah, and it's funny how um, as we age, I guess when my parents too, they, your long-term memory, your short-term memory goes first, but your long-term memory is there and certain significant things mean how we code things going back to the, the lion and the primitive tough stuff and what we remember we code in something significant to us. Um, there's a real nice story about, I'll just bring this up, that this gentleman wanted to go home one day. He didn't want to be in the nursing home, and he was dressed formally. He was sitting by the door. He was wanting to go home. And anywhere one of the caretakers, his son comes, and the caretaker's like, man, we're having trouble with her, your dad. We, we never have this. I don't know what's driving. He wants to go home. He's demanding to go home today. And she's, I, I, I've talked to him. I, I don't know what, what, what this is about. She's first time this has ever happened. Mm -hmm. She says, there's something significant about this day. And he's like, yeah, it's my mother's birthday. And whether he was traveling, he usually was home. But if he was traveling, he would always send her a gift or flowers to know, to acknowledge it. So then they told the man that they were sending flowers to his wife. Then he went about his business. But he, he knew in the back of his mind he was supposed to do that on that day. And he remembered that day as a 90-year-old man. He remembered that that was a significant thing that he had to do. Right. Um, that, that was part of his legacy of his life, um, that he did that on that certain day. Uh, I mean, he was suffering from Alzheimer's, but he knew deep down that he needed to go do that. That, wasn't, that was important. Yeah, yeah. You know, you had also shared another story one time, I think it was related to your mother that she didn't want the neighbors to know that she needed any type of help, whether it was uh, about pride or being judged. And I think it's so interesting, especially with the, the sometimes it feels like there's more stress today, uh, or there's more of a pressure to be perfect. And I thought how interesting that she couldn't even allow herself to you know, in her mind, appear weak with neighbors or friends. And I wondered if you might speak 
about that for a moment. Yeah, and, and what she, she had Parkinson's where her signal from her brain wouldn't go all the way through her leg and it would lock up, she'd fall. Um, instead of using a walker around the house, she'd grab onto furniture, very diligent person, very, usually you tell her something and she does it, very diligent person. But when it came to that, and I'd find her on the floor and I'm like, why in the world don't you use a walker? Somebody's like Brian, in her mind, she knows she probably needs it, but, but physically putting it there in front of her means she has to acknowledge that the problem is there. Now, when she went out to the nursing home, they told her, look, you're gonna stick out. You're gonna look kind of odd if you don't have a walker. So it was accepted there that most people had walkers. It wasn't a sign of weakness. It was typical. Mm -hmm. So she wouldn't um, look different then. Yeah, um, yeah, I live, I, I don't know, you're old enough to remember that there used to be an alarm system that you wore on your bracelet. You know, I've fallen, I need to call 911. There was a commercial about it. Commercial. Yeah, that commercial. Yeah. Well, I live alone. And one time I, my heart was racing. I thought I was having a heart attack and it wasn't. Um, it was just some reaction to some medicine. And I'm sitting there like, oh crap, if I'm having a heart attack and I live alone. Well, I've got my cell phone, but if I'm having a heart attack, I can't use it. Crap, do I, do I need to get one of those alarm systems? Am I at that age now that I need to get one of those things? I live alone. Mm -hmm. Should I be doing this? No, I'm not that old. I don't need that. That's crazy. Come on, I'm, I'm still by myself. There's that pride that you can right. take care right. of yourself. Yeah. Right, I'm empowered. I'm empowered. You're, you're yeah. taking stuff away. Um, they also taught us in a nursing home, as you age, things get taken away from you. Like mm -hmm. you can't drive your car anymore. And we're mm -hmm. doing it for safety. Mm -hmm. But how much autonomy that takes away from a person. So maybe like with my father. Independence. Yeah. Well, like my father used to clean his driveway with a snowblower. That was his, his job that he always did. Um, instead of saying, hey, dad, I'll do that. You can't do that anymore. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying that to him encourage them and say, hey, when you get better and you get out of here, you can do, you can clean the driveway. Um, I, I told him one time I'd clean the driveway and I come out to see him. I said, somebody's been asking about you. He's like, who? I said, the snowblower. I said, it's got five gallons of gasoline waiting there for you. And it's been wondering where you're at. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, I, I don't know if I can do that yet. I said, well, when you can, I said, it's waiting for you and it's ready. It's shiny and it's ready for you to do that. Well, when I get back, he could barely walk to the restroom. But in his mind, if he could just get out of this facility, he'd was, be back shoveling and cleaning the snow. It was something to look forward to. Yeah, it was something to look forward to. Instead of, and imagine this, everything's getting taken away from you and you can't do what you used to be, used to be able to do. And people keep taking stuff away from you. Yeah. You can't do, you can't do that. Um, you have to have something to look forward to as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the things we've also talked about is the magical three words of words are powerful. True. Yeah. Yeah. So like the social worker told us to encourage him. So saying, oh, dad, you can't do this. or You can't do that. You're trying to protect them. Mm -hmm. Try to encourage them that they will, even though, you know, they probably won't have that possibility. Mm -hmm. Try to encourage them. Because yeah. everything's being taken away, encourage them for something. Because all you see is a negative and taken away and you limit this. 
having to call somebody to go to the bathroom. Imagine that at this age, if you had somebody you had to depend on to help you go to the bathroom. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you're speaking to is the power each of us have, no matter where we are in life. And maybe our power is how we talk to other people. Maybe our power is that we encourage another compared to tearing them down. You know, I've heard recently the acronym of PhD, you know, tear her down or tear him down. And I think in society today, because especially with cyberbullying or any type of bullying, it's so easy to tear another person down, whether it's character assassinations or a smear campaign, that it's like, you know, we can hide behind a screen and we don't realize the power we have to either lift somebody up or rip them down. Just as, you know, as you're speaking for a moment, you know, as a family member or an employee within a, you know, convalescent home, you know, we can either, you know, in our power, our ordinary power, that moment, we can either make somebody's day filled with sunshine or we can make them feel worthless or useless. Yeah. And I also think, um, kind of popped in my mind, turning, kind of coming full circle with this, uh, with your legacy. Um, I was, I won't go into a long story, but my dad was always usually good about, uh, talking to you about when you're in between jobs. That was one thing he was always kind of understood that very well. He's always kind of empathetic there. One area was because uh, he struggled when he was very young to get bouncing around different jobs. So one day I'm in there and I'm telling him, dad, I don't like life. Life isn't fair. Life isn't good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm ever going to get a job again. And I'm looking for empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, he sat up and rolled up in his wheelchair, pushed himself up. And he just happened to rip into me big time. Basically, he was telling me, Brian, if you're, if you're this miserable right now, try to find something happy and go do it. Because if you're lucky enough to get to my age, you're going to have time like this on your hands to look back through your whole life. And you don't want to have to look back on misery. It's just going to make this time even worse for you if all you see is misery in your life. He said, this idle time that you have before you pass, you're, you're going to really hate it. So get your head out of your ass and basically go figure out what you'd like to do and go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think I've mentioned this before. I think that was his last lesson to me and most lasting. He passed away about six months after that. Um, his so words of wisdom. To, yeah, his w- words of wisdom uh, from that. And I think that part say you end up in a nursing home and every day is the same. Now with the internet, you can probably connect out to friends in our generation much, much easier. But I have heard that people wonder about people they didn't stay in touch with over, over time. But you have all this time on your hands to look back. Mm-hmm. What's that look back gonna feel like for you? You mm-hmm. know the end is coming. You only have so much time. You have idle time on your hands where you can't, do as much as you used to and you can look back at what you did or didn't do and i think that's with your legacy part of what do you want that to be in that in those reflective moments yeah yeah it's a big reflective moment that you have so it sounds like your. do you think your dad was um speaking to backbone yeah he was talking about how he's he had he didn't come out directly and said that no, he had a lot of time to look back at his life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the nurses, I didn't know how close he was at night. He used to bring out these photo books that my sister had. And she knew all sorts of stuff about our childhood because he talked about all sorts of things that were in those picture books with her. So he was looking back through his whole life because he had all this time on his hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, he couldn't go fishing. He couldn't go drive a car. He couldn't go to the mall. He was just in a room and, you know, he would eat, watch TV and maybe go somewhere to take him out for physical therapy. But other than that, his life was kind of limited. So he had a lot of time to think. Sometimes mm -hmm. thinking can be our worst enemy sometimes. Yeah, yeah. If you could have a megaphone to the entire world, what would you like them to know about, from, from your shoes, what, it, what you would like, yeah, what would you like others to know, given that experience, you know, if it was, I think it was, you said about three years, three or four years? Um you know, in the education that it brought you or, or just in general, what would, if you could have a megaphone? I think uh, you have to have patience. It becomes a burden. Mm. Um, it becomes a burden, overbearing burden. Um, but you have to have patience. And when you're going through that, that moment of the burden, um, There'll be a day when you do miss them. They will be gone. There's a day later on that the burden won't be uh, won't be as bad as it, it seemed at that time. It wouldn't be a burden. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to my cousin here a while back. His parents had Alzheimer's. And I said, you know, I think I lost 10 years of my life. I said, I don't mean that in a mean way. He's like, you did. But he said, you'd do it again mm. if you mm. had to. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the patience. And for me, uh, I don't know if it was God's will, um, but when I was first, I lived with my parents for a year and helped take care of them. And they were still pretty active, but had problems. And I would get so impatient with them, walking slow to the car or up and open the door and they couldn't get in. Like, oh, God, can't we just... Can't you just move? Can't you? Well, I ended up with kidney stones and severe pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very painful experience. And my sister's like, well, can't you just walk to the door? Can't you do this? Can't you do that? Because we live in this instant gratification culture, you know, like Amazon, well, Surrey, and Alexa. Well, and I, I was suffering for pain. And she's like, well, can't you? Because like I told her on the way to the hospital, I was like, just run the red light. Just go. I'm in pain. Just get to the hospital. She's like, oh, Brian's a red light. We got to. I'm like, I don't care. I'm in pain. Please have empathy for me. Please be patient with me here. Right. Um, so that patience, I think, and that empathy. Um, also that shift. I also add compassion. Compassion. And I think yeah. as we get older, we just say, oh, they're old people. But they mm -hmm. still have feelings. Still have significant. And once upon a time, somebody told me this. A 92-year-old friend of my dad. He's like, Brian, I we were all young one time. Because I was like, he was reflecting back to some, some things when he was a kid. I'm like, really? That's been a long time ago. And he's like, we're all young once, Brian. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, and getting back to how, how your legacy will be or what will people say at your funeral. Um, I think we just take our day-to-day -day activity a lot of times when you say not planning. We just, we just go for the day. 
and what we do, we don't look at the long term and take a break from that and, and figure that out more so. Yeah. I, I just think, think in nature, we don't do that. We just do the survival and getting that squirrel will and that hamster will and uh, do the day-to-day -day stuff to survive. We don't take a break to, to look out long term. We think we have infinite amount of time. Um, I'm midway through my life right now. Uh, when I was in my 30s, things don't have changed to later on to where I'm at right now. 30 years still had infinite amount of time. You don't you think you're indispensable, but after mm -hmm. you live a while and you see people pass, um, you get to you find out you're uh, not invincible. Um, there is an infinite amount of time, or a finite amount of time that you have left um, with it. And what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So in closing, I almost hear that these ordinary moments can be these opportunities to create our legacy, that it's not something that is far away. It is in the moments of when you had said, uh, you know, what can be perceived as a burden can actually be that golden opportunity to have, you know, the conversations of wisdom and the moments of insight. Yeah, and I think in closing for you as well, um, I think you help bring people to the surface of uh, creating their vision and creating what they what they want to be remembered for. I, I think you break that day-to-day that -day routine with them and help them really envision and, and, and plan and think about what they need to need and what they want to do going forward and moving that forward. So I think that's part of what your service provides uh, for people is to help that long-term uh, planning on uh, for that. Yeah. Um, and people don't like, people don't like to talk about the end, but it's, all of us, it's going to happen someday to us. Yeah. Well, change is hard. People don't always like change as much as they think that they like change when it actually happens. Uh, it is, it's like, uh, sometimes it can be taking a certain amount of control away, even if it can be exchanged for something better. And even if I think about something like succession planning, um, you know, if you take something away from someone, let's say the senior generation, like you had said, you have to give them something back. Like when you talked about the, the story with your dad and the snow and shoveling the driveway and the snowblower, you can't just rip something from somebody and then because it, it creates such a vacuum. Yeah. And I think people need things to look forward to. They need to wake up and know that they have something to look forward to, you know, whether they're in that age group, whether they're a senior generation or whether it's, you know, due to the COVID pandemic today, you know, around the world and, you know, it, yeah, yes. So, okay. Yeah, I think well, you have a purpose. Yes, yes. Purpose yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian. You're welcome. This deep conversation. Thank you for diving into some areas that I know are vulnerable, and I hope that it will be in service to others that are going through, you know, whether it is aging parents or whether it is, you know, they're a, an athlete, whether high school, college, or even in the professional world, and they have different choices that they have to make because of pressure that's on them, whether it's with, you know, the endorsements, the sports agents, or, you know, things that we may never know about on the outside but, you know, behind closed doors, you know, the things that they are facing and the choices that they have to make. So thank you so much for speaking into those experiences. Right. You're welcome. It was a good, good conversation. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.